in the 11FS office in London for episode 83 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Facebook take a step forward in the blockchain world, Fidelity get ready to disrupt the crypto market, and custody is still everything. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by a standing Colin G. Platt near a field. Why are you standing near your field? Well, you guys are giving me a hard... Well, Petrick was giving me a hard time because I have a standing desk. That's... I mean, listeners, write in, podcast at 11fs.com. Is Colin being weird having a standing desk? I, I think he is. I think that's quite a weird thing to do, personally. It's, it's better for your back. Uh, something like that. I think it's also worse for your feet and your knees. So, you know, like, on balance, are you winning? Are you really winning? <laughs> I think it's probably good. I mean, come on. People were made to stand. Like, you've seen the little things where you evolve from the monkey that's kind of crouched over to the human standing up. None of them are sitting down, right? Except for the Dilbert one. And the bankers. Um, But speaking of bankers, have you been having a fun week? What have you been up to? I have been having uh, a very fun week uh, screaming at JavaScript. Why would you do such a thing? Uh, It's just a long story. It's a long story. I've had a weirdly fun week as well. I've been working again, working with one of our clients, looking at uh, the future of FX and how aggregators are really impacting the FX market, um, especially in the global corporate space. But what does that mean as you see CIB uh, kind of banks more, especially the the tier ones like JP Morgan, starting to combine their small business operations with their much, much larger uh, kind of CIB operations, are they starting to bring that service that we historically saw for you know that corporate and institutional client base down into the the sort of the small business market, that 10 to $100 million uh, revenue range? So interesting one to watch. Well, it's all going to be on the standard, my friend. It's all going to be on the standard. Yeah, we'll see something like that. Um, I have no <laughs> idea what you just said. What XRP the standard, the standard. <laughs> oh, XRP the standard. Right. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like it's time to move on. Um, and I think first- that's where we're going. I think the first story this week comes from Fortune.com. Crypto exchange Kraken raises uh, $100 million and acquires London futures firms. So um, they've paid uh, nine figures, apparently, to acquire Crypto Facilities, a British trading firm that specializes in derivatives. They've already integrated back-end operations of Crypto Facilities, which means users of both services will immediately be able to trade on a single platform, which, considering how long it took them to do an upgrade a while ago, is is pretty impressive. Um, The deal is the biggest yet for Kraken, who've previously acquired several smaller exchanges, as well as a a research firm, a digital wallet firm. um, And of course, their recent $100 million raise uh, was from crypto uh, OGs rather than VCs. Uh, It doesn't appear to be VC funding. Um, Is this Kraken starting to move in that Coinbase direction, moving into derivatives and potentially that more full service offering rather than just that consumer front end? I I think they've started to figure out what every other financial institution in the world has figured out, which is eventually products mature and you need to move on to more exotic things to make money. Um, Mm -hmm. Like clearly spot trading has um, reached kind of a plateau in, in revenues and they're having to fight with other offerings. Um, so what's the next thing? Get more exotic, which means more regulation, which means derivatives. It does indeed. Um, they also recently announced their brand new design, uh, which is interesting because their design then also appeared almost like for like in a design template um, blog and journal that I saw a couple of days later. It's, it's kind of almost consumer facing in, in how they've redone their design, but their platform behind the scenes hasn't really changed. So is this 
you know, kind of uh, a doubling down on, you know, we've got to make sure that the consumer front end is pretty, or is it really, as you say, doubling down into futures and and other types of contracts beyond that, like options where you're getting into derivatives world? Um, Can Kraken uh, be both those things, or do they have to move more in one direction than the other? I think this is going back to your Coinbase comment. Um, the Coinbase went through the same thing. I mean, uh, the the redesign, if, if you really try to read the tea leaves, is saying, yeah, let's be more consumer and go for that like very stand, like bog standard Silicon Valley green people or purple people or whatever they are, mm-hmm. uh, neutral everything, um, which appeals, I guess, to the retail side of things. Um, let's remember that like, if you're an institution of any sort, you're probably actually going through an API. Uh, you're not actually seeing their website, um, though I know some larger institutions were. I, I don't know if we really read too much of it, but if there if there is kind of a, a let's focus on both, that's going to be very hard from a strategic point of view, I think. Um, but it is, it's very hard to be institution only because right now there are no institutions. Um, they may come, but they're not there yet. Indeed. And it's important to say that crypto facilities are authorized uh, by the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom. Um, they, uh, I think their principal place of business, contact details, yeah, their status is authorized, uh, effective from 2017. Um, so they, you know, they, they are fully authorized. This is um, probably a uh, two-pronged. One, yes, it's getting them into the derivative space, but two, this is uh, an, a company that's regulated in the UK, and which for the time being also means you can passport into the rest of Europe. So um, that, that's an interesting strategic position that they find themselves in. I believe they were also quite um, integral in the, the CME futures. Interesting. Um, I did not know that. Um, they um, they produced that, um, the Bitcoin futures index, the, the pricing. Ah, okay, yeah. So there was a there was a question about how you take the pricing index historically. Um, so you know, providing a reliable index is always going to be challenging. And knowing that you know, is this index something I can believe, or has it been subject to manipulation? So uh, I wonder, I wonder how they got there. Yeah, well, I mean, Kraken is also one of the um, the four. Uh, well, it was at the time it may be more now. Uh, four of the initial providers of price to that that index itself. And yeah. um, if if we look back into the traditional markets, things like uh, Russell ind- Indices got sold for tons and tons of money from the asset manager that set it up uh, to London Stock Exchange Group because of the indices they had. That's that's worth a ton of money uh, in a market where you can start to monetize those things. So, uh, like everywhere else, data, data, data. Indeed. And and as we move into a derivatives market, do you expect that you'll see institutions coming to look to buy? Uh, you know, you were saying last week that, that futures may have a future, uh, funnily enough, uh, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, then would moves like this, you know, kind of be a part of that trend? I think if it, if it allows um, for more well-regulated, well-functioning markets with market infrastructure behind it that's set up for it, where you can actually trade the physical, uh, that would be a good thing. This could be a step in that direction. Or it could just be a, a good way for a company with a lot of cash or the ability to raise a lot of cash to kind of suck up uh, good talent. We'll see. Interesting one to watch. All right, let's move on to the next story. Um, this one comes from bankingtech.com, but it could have come from just about anywhere on the internet. Um, in the last week, uh, Swift linked up with R3 for trading on a blockchain. So they've uh, turned to R3's blockchain platform, Corda, uh, for a proof of concept to uh, trial uh, a linking to GPI. So this is their global payments initiative. Um, and uh, linking e-commerce and trading platforms uh 
I guess, using Corda Settler and using GPI. So the gateway will enable continuous monitoring and control of payment flows and the subsequent movement of goods by those trade platforms while supporting APIs and ISO standards. The first stage of the POC will work on Corda, uh, aiming to bring GPI payments to the blockchain-enabled trade. The settlement system will also use fiat currencies and enable off-ledger settlement based on GPI. So many words and acronyms. Should we step through this one a little bit? <laughs> we, sh- we should. I-, I think we started to talk about uh, GPI, was it last week or the week before mm-hmm. on the show? Um, I-, I think it's cool stuff, but I'm not a payments uh, expert here. I, I like fancy ledgers. Um, but yeah, so... GPI is the what global payments initiative, and it's basically SWIFT, which is the big messaging system that all the banks use to ping ping each other fancy encrypted emails to say basically money's moved from bank A to bank B or bank A to bank B to bank C to bank D to bank E or whatever. Um, and the, historically, a lot of people have noticed that the actual settlement after you ping that message says, okay, this payment's going to take uh, one days, two days, three days, four days, five days maybe longer, maybe shorter, depending on that GPI. The the goal is, um, and I think they're actually delivering on it, is that most payments are delivered within an hour. Um, and I think 90% of them are delivered within 30 minutes currently. Yeah, which is pretty impressive. I mean, it has made a material difference. I mean, the, the, there's still a long way to go. I think there's something like 200, maybe more, maybe three, 400 banks using GPI, which is pretty significant, especially... Mm-hmm. When you consider that most of the payments go through the really big banks who've been using it for for quite some time, uh, and I think when you're in Happy Path payments, so let's say I'm trying to pay Colin, but Colin's in some far flung field, so I can't get from the UK directly to his field, so I have to go via uh, the UK to France to the USA back to I don't know South Africa and then to your field um, in France. <laughs> If, if I were to do that, I've got to go through five different banks, and those five different banks might be subject to different central bankers' regulations. So um, I could get flagged for having a tax issue in one of those countries, and uh, none of the banks are allowed to tell either the uh, the payer or the beneficiary why it's been stopped, uh, because that would be kind of breaking confidentiality and Bank Secrecy Act. Um, it Basically, as soon as it's flagged, it's flagged. Now, the banks are allowed to talk to each other about what's gone wrong, but they're not allowed to tell you uh, the, the sender of the money or the beneficiary why it's been held up. But prior to GPI, you also had this issue where the banks didn't have an agreed way to really communicate what the hell was going on either. So like, and, and if I'm a corporate and I'm moving loads of money around the world, I couldn't see which bank had stopped it or you know where it was stuck in the system. So it was this stupid situation in which I'd try and send money to the other side of the world. I wouldn't know how much it was going to cost, when it was going to get there. And in some cases, if it was going to get there. So GPI solves an absolutely massive problem, and it does it with a good old uh, application programming interface. How about that? Um, so huge, hugely valuable. Um, but what's new here, I think, is the uh, R3 introduction of Corda Settler. Um, and of course, Settler, as we know, allows developers to um, structure flows um, to update and extinguish obligations. In English, this means um, if two transaction parties agree to a method of settlement and additional conditions to that settlement. So 
if this, then do that. If the price moves, then settle it. If the price moves this way, then settle it somewhere else. I could set a whole bunch of conditions, whereas traditionally payments were quite dumb. It's like, just send this money over here. And it's like, okay, we'll now set about sending this money over here. Quarter Settler gives you that additional set of logic around it, which is why it makes sense for trade finance. It's why it makes sense for a whole bunch of other contracts. Uh, if something hits a certain price or a date obligation is met, then bang, trigger the payment um, and then trigger it through all of these things at all of these different places, uh, through all of these different banks. So you can see why it would make sense, but it's important to point out that this is still early. Um, it was a proof of concept, but it seems like the XRP army absolutely loved it, so therefore buy XRP. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of speculation from people following that particular currency of, you know, oh, because these things are plugged into each other and there's a proof of concept here and a proof of concept there, that must mean that there's a massive desire behind it. I don't know that that's what it really means. It's just a, a good way to show off a bit of technology um, using a cryptocurrency, using a, a more standard uh, traditional messaging method, even if it's a new iteration of it. Indeed. It's going to be one to watch for sure, Colin, because uh, there's this huge pain out there. And imagine um, that you're not a global corporate who knows how to manage this and you're a smaller business. Things just disappear for you and you don't know how to chase your banks for it. Um, I think there's huge opportunity to to still get this right. So uh, good on those guys. I mean, if, if this proof of concept goes well, do you see more of this stuff in the future? Um, you know, is this the place where DLT finally makes an impact? And I guess um, Swift isn't dead just yet. Yeah, no, I, I think nobody's quite there yet. But I think what's really cool is that, that point you're bringing up, which is, I mean, kind of one of the promises of DLT as it pertains to financial services is really collapsing multiple different systems and messaging layers into a common, mutually um, intelligible system. And that uh, bringing that all together in a structured way is really, really cool. Uh, and that's that's essentially the basis of what this DLT stuff means, right? Um it gets fancier when you throw in, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchains. But within a DLT, you're not trying to do that. You're just saying we've got a thousand different systems. They all work in a different way, and we can kind of talk together. We can kind of, uh, you know, square blocks, round hole type thing. But this is to say, okay, everything's going in here. Let's structure everything up. Let's get some APIs in and out, and then let's build contracts around it. And that's essentially what banks do. Um, this just digitizes it. So it's a digital first way to offer those things. And that will change business models more than it will change the business itself. I think it's important to note as well, people um, often don't look at, at um, Swift's growth. Uh, Swift has been growing nearly 10% year on year by the number of messages per day it's sending. And that's really significant because when you're seeing a Swift message, you're not necessarily seeing uh, Simon paying Colin. You're seeing all of Simon's bank's customers um, and any obligations and transactions that Simon's bank has with any obligations and transactions of Colin's bank. So there's a lot of netted transactions that are happening at once there. So uh, that kind of 10% year-on-year growth is, is really significant. And I, I plucked that stat from the Swift.com website. Uh, so I think people have been sort of talking about the death of Swift for quite some time. But if they're able to move into something that's truly API-driven and given us open data, we can then start to do some, some really interesting things. Absolutely. And I, I think that they've taken a good approach. I mean, at first when Swift started looking at it, they said, how can we be a blockchain? And now they've kind of figured out how can we feed in to new technologies? I think initially, because when Bitcoin came out, it was going to replace any links between any banks. And now it's much more, uh, it was certainly the DLT and the tokens conversation is mm. much more about uh, how can we take some of the 
complexity that sits around the payment and make that automated uh, workflows. And that's straight through process across organizational boundaries. Like banks have been um, and, and corporates have been wrestling with trying to get straight through processes internally for the last couple of decades. Imagine a straight through process across five different banks or 10 different banks and counterparties. Uh, that was also conditional. Um, so if the market moves, you can start executing all of this logic in an automated way, uh, bringing to the middle and back office what the front office has been doing for, for many years. I think the promise is still very much there as it was five years ago. What's interesting to me is, uh, will we start to see this become more and more real? Mm, absolutely. All righty. Um, Speaking of R3 and Quarter, this episode is brought to you, of course, by those lovely, lovely folks at R3. Um, and of course, blockchain is not just for FinServe, it's for Collins Field, um, it's for tons of other industries too. Um, healthcare, insurance, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, if you want to discover the potential blockchain for your business with R3's Quarter platform, uh, you can do so by heading over to r3.com for more information. Alrighty. Um, Next story comes from The Block Crypto. Um, prop firms are hard to sell. Shares for crypto exchange Circle are being offered at a massive discount, apparently. So private shares of Circle, the cryptocurrency exchange operator, are being offered uh, at a massive discount on Shares Post, a platform that allows accredited investors to exchange shares of private companies, so sort of secondary market for privately held companies. And, of course, what we're seeing is that shares were worth uh, $16.23 uh, in, in May 2018, Shares currently are available to purchase at $3.80. Uh, Circle's over-the-counter trading business, Circle Trade, however, stood out um, as a strong business during the bear market, uh, facilitating $24 billion of notional trading volume in 2018. 77% discount. That's wow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not too out of whack with the cryptocurrency market, is it? No, it's not, but... Against, um, I think against the market, right? You've got to consider 24 billion of trading volume and arguably a business that has consistently um, done interesting things. Uh, mm -hmm. Whilst on the, I think this, the story of crypto broadly is that the consumer dalliances never seem to work, but the institutional stuff seems to gain traction. These guys have tried both and uh, kind of doubled down on both. Uh, and you know, on the consumer side, I think Circle were initially known as being that consumer pay payment, peer-to-peer uh, -peer payment app that never really quite became the Venmo of crypto. Uh, but actually, on the institutional side, I mean, they're, they're one of the big names, one of the big beasts. Um, so they, you know, are absolutely in this interesting place. Uh, and that's a huge, huge discount for something that, like if you were to say um, of all of the businesses out there who might have uh, you know, the brightest future, these guys have a, a CEO with a track record of building successful tech businesses. Um, they're considered, uh, to my mind, they seem to be always on the right side of regulation and, and quite you know, like the, uh, the adults in the room. Uh, they, they seem to be fairly well placed, and they have some pretty impressive backers like Goldman, uh, like I think some of the biggest um, uh, Silicon Valley VCs as well. So interesting one to watch, and they seem to be fairly well capitalized and yeah. turning revenue. Yeah, uh, it's and I think it's it's one of those stories that you know again, um, it's very hard when you mix the the mentality of a of a hedge fund trader um, trying to make uh, short term profits with. The VC mentality of nurturing an uh, early stage growth company. Um, 
uh, that that makes it really. I love Shares Post. I think they're a great company, um, and I think they've got really interesting products. So up there with Circle uh, on a different mm-hmm. level, um, but looking at these price changes, it reflects, I think, uh, the greater market trade rather than necessarily where the mm-hmm. funds themselves would be marking the, the prices. Yeah, you're not seeing this as um, uh, an indictment on Circle. It's more of an indictment on the market. I, I think a lot of liquidity has dropped out of the market because people have looked at, at that and said, well, that must affect this as well. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if it's just Goldman Sachs, I really doubt that they're marking the shares down 77% based on this. Maybe Which, they're marking it down a little bit, but probably not even. I think that's probably fair. But then also, if they'd marked it up historically, had they marked it up against a, a, a bull market? So, you know, this is probably, yeah. A, yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. What do you think uh, the long-term game plan for the likes of a circle, but also other OTC desks are? Well, like, if you're an OTC desk in this market, is it just keep treading water on the Bitcoin mining ecosystem and uh, the futures ecosystem, wait for the institutional traders to come in and see if the, see if you can uh, get this asset class really moving? Like, what's the goal here? Uh, I think they've got lots of goals, but essentially, I mean, structurally, uh, for a long time, these brokers were helping very large early investors get out of their positions and get into something else, uh, be it fiat or another currency, if they're going from a less liquid into a more liquid one. Um, some of some of the times it's helping miners. I don't know that that's the biggest part of their trade because they, they tend to watch the market a bit more. Um, but, you know, if you've got a very, uh, if you've got a 10% position in a currency and you want to get out, you're not going to the likes of Kraken. You're not going to Bitfinex. You're not going mm-hmm. to Binance. Uh, you need to go to somebody else that knows how to work that in the market. And that's what they can do. And they can place it someplace else. Um, I suspect a lot of that's still going on, even at the lower prices, because sometimes people still need liquidity on those things. Um, sometimes it's to help out the position in something like a, uh, an ICO that's taken on a lot of Ether, and they still need to pay the bills. So mm-hmm. um, as long as the businesses and those treasuries still exist, and they need to move something larger than the market size on the exchange, which is very retail focused. I think it's still going to be strong, and at some point they can shift like every other broker has shifted. Interesting to watch. Um, speaking of retail, which you mentioned there, story from uh, Coindesk.com. Fidelity says its uh, crypto trading and storage platform is in final testing. Uh, so the company noted in a blog post late this past Thursday, so that would have been, I think, the 31st of January, um, that it had selected a set of eligible clients already whilst it worked on building Fidelity Digital Asset Services, or uh, the snappily titled FDAS. Um, <laughs> FDAS. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite Germanic, is that, is that, doesn't it? Is that like a, yeah, a German telling it fuck off or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so platform, uh, they say they're going to go live um, in the first quarter of 2019, and they've only got um, about half of that left, so they, they, that's pretty soon. Um, yeah. The storage components are already custodying assets on behalf of its initial customers. So uh, we've talked a lot about uh, custody of crypto assets, but is this exciting? Is this a mainstream moment? Like, is this the consumer big thing, or is there something else going on here? I, I don't know. Um, a lot of people are very excited about it. Um, I think there's probably some cool things that come out of fixing a lot of these issues, and custody is something that really matters, um, which we'll talk more and more about in a minute. Um, and Fidelity is a great name for that, but I, I don't know that this is necessarily the watershed moment, though I could be absolutely wrong. The, the bigger thing that kind of comes into this is 
right once these clients get it in, how are they treated? Does that actually help? Does it fit into a portfolio? Is this something that becomes sustainable? Uh, is it something that's treated appropriately from a tax point of view? Or is this just uh, trying to build innovation and doing innovation theater? Indeed. It could I, be. I, it's yeah. hard to say. I mean, the interesting thing to remember about Fidelity is is how they're owned, right? So it's privately held and controlled by the Johnson family. So unlike nearly every other player in this market, with the possible exception historically of Vanguard, um, most of these organizations are you know, kind of massive, uh, if not publicly traded, then certainly something that's owned by multiple other parties. There isn't one clear owner. There's something entrepreneurial, 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 about the uh, sort of family ownership here. And the other thing is optically, like it, the the family here, the Johnson family and some of the leadership at Fidelity have been quite vocal about, you know, this being the future of the market, something they're interested in, uh, which strikes a very different tone to the rest of the market. They've, they've not been as afraid to say, we find this interesting. We want to think about how we offer this to our clients. Um, you know, and, and it, it seems less like innovation theater and more genuine curiosity from senior management, which in itself I find interesting just because of how different it is to the rest of the market. Yeah, no, I absolutely. Um, I, I'm just always blown away every time I, I talk to an investment manager about how, how much they kind of take a step back and wait for things to come to them. And I, I think you rightly say Fidelity is kind of taking a step forward. Um, to me, the, the bigger change I think is, is that, um, mental impact of, you know, can we advance our business and uh, try to build our own things? Or are we going to be reliant based on our service providers, sell-side banks and, and the like? And you got to bear in mind where Fidelity is in the U.S. wealth market, right? They're seeing Robinhood and Acorns coming and eating their lunch. You know, Robinhood now has uh, 4 million customers. Uh, Acorns has 4.5 million. That's more than E-Trade, one of the you know largest consumer uh, online broker platforms. So in that space, uh, they, they, there's a new type of competition. And when Robinhood made Bitcoin available, they had nearly a million signups and people join that service within the space of a couple of months. Now, that was that was absolutely fantastic marketing. Um, but the way they did that was very, you know, find a partner in the background. Um, we'll, you arrive for the Bitcoin, you stay for the savings. But there's there's something else going on there in the wealth market that I think is really interesting. This uh, mobile-driven, mobile-only kind of user experience for consumers that is, you know, linked to everyday spend. Uh, that's on a subscription model. You know, the business model is completely being turned on its head. Um, you know, ten years ago, people were talking about robo advisors. Now it's really these all-in-one mobile-only wealth platforms with an entirely different business model, an entirely different consumer demographic. You got to remember the average customer of Acorns is 32 and has $60,000 in savings, I bet you the average customer of Fidelity is 10 to 20 years older. Uh, so where are your future customers coming from and where's the customer base that's just going to be pulling down on those savings? There's an interesting question for the likes of a Fidelity and other people in their category. Like if you're going to have that consumer-facing platform, what are you doing with it? Uh, and, and I look at a lot of the wealth banks or, or people with platforms to offer. If you're a Morgan Stanley, if you're a Charles Schwab, how do you react in this market? And, and do you do more than innovation theater or do you actually go do something that's really going to punch back against the likes of Robin Hood and Acorns? I, I wonder kind of on a, a more holistic level, uh, I mean, the US and the UK are very different markets. And, and of course, in Western Europe, it's even different from that. Um, in the US, I get the impression that um, asset managers are able to derive a, a very strong brand amongst consumers. Mm -hmm. 
I don't get that same impression in the UK, although I think they'd like to think they do. <laughs> and in, in the rest of the EU, it seems to go through you know larger groups, banks that own asset managers, and a lot of people just save through them. The standalone is I mean, it's definitely big and it exists. A lot of them are tied to insurance companies. So mm-hmm. do you think that this is Fidelity trying to, to push the, the leverage that they have in the US with the consumer? And do you think that'll translate across markets? So first question, absolutely. This is trying to them, them trying to use their consumer leverage. I think it's uh, it's a defensive play with some optimism um, attached to it. Uh, they've seen their small and more nimble competitors come and do this, and they want to do a me too, but you know, take a belts and braces approach and do it properly, which. I actually think is compelling. Um, would it translate to the UK? I think almost no. Um, mm-hmm. w- in the UK, you do see a little bit of these sorts of platforms. So we've got people like Hargreaves, Lansdowne. Um, you're now seeing newer robos like Wealthify and Wealthsimple, mm-hmm. um, execution-only platforms like Free Trade, um, and then everyday savings platforms like Plum and um, Money Moneybox. Uh, but Whilst Plum has half a million customers, which is you know a lot for the UK, um, whilst uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne has a few million, it, it's nowhere near as common as you would get in the US, where it's it's entirely normal to talk to your friends about how your Vanguard um, is performing or or how your Fidelity is performing on what you just bought. In the UK, it's almost taboo to to talk about that sort of thing. And bear in mind as well, in the UK, it's very normal that you would have uh, the equivalent of a four hundred one k a work based pension plan, like every employer in the United Kingdom has to offer its full-time permanent staff a a full pension. Um, Now, that pension is not index-linked in the way that pensions used to be. It it looks more like a a 401k um, plan in the US would. But still, uh, it changes the conversation when as soon as you get full-time work, you have to have had a pension provided for you. You're not immediately going out and hunting for it. So you're not put in that position where you have to educate yourself. So there is a set of market differences, but the fintech community in London it's, it's kind of come at a different tack for that reason. Um, so, and, and across Europe as well, I think you'll see more of these mobile-only plays. And, and mobile-only and mobile-first is going to be, I think, the next strategic battleground for wealth. And, and crypto and digital assets can be that thing that draws somebody in um, and can be a great marketing ploy that I think a lot of people are missing. Yeah, and, and so I wonder on that, like putting the US aside, because obviously a very different dynamic, the people, the people. When you think of the people around you, whether they're you know in your same demographic or whether they're more you know your parents, if they say right, I want to buy this Bitcoin, are they going to be using a Fidelity app and say right, I've got money here, I'm going to put it in, or are they just going to say, oh, I heard about this Bitcoin thing, I'm going to set up Coinbase or somebody like Coinbase. It really depends. Um, so the interesting thing uh, is that we saw, I think, during the crypto gold rush of last year that most people rushed to a Coinbase or a Kraken account because it was the easiest way to do it. But then Revolut added that capability mm-hmm. and it drove a whole bunch of signups for them there because Revolut, either A, people had it, or B, uh, it was much easier to sign up for and a much better experience than most of the crypto exchanges once you did um, because it was, it was so much simpler to use. I suspect what you'll see is the ongoing evolution of these, uh, the financial control center. Uh, this is where your Monzos, your Starlings, and others, where you've got the sort of the core everyday spend capability mm-hmm. in the middle. And then around that, it's so easy to move money in and out of it. That would be where you buy your cryptos from, but it would also be where you manage your pension from. This, this concept of a financial control center uh, and, and managing everyday cash flow is, is a lot more crucial to long-term savings and investments than I think people have, have realized historically. And there's still so much to do there. 
Yeah. I, I just, I, you know, my position, I'm still very worried about, you know, classing these things as, as investments that should go into a, a common portfolio and not looking them as, you know, gambling, which is currently given the volatility, probably closer to what they are. Although the volatility I, is down. <laughs> indeed. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with you on that at all. Uh, I think, I suspect, uh, Getting getting somebody a, a very limited version of that or using it to hack their attention is far better than trying to present it as if it's an investment. If you have a big red warning sign that says this is tantamount to gambling, have fun, but don't you know? Please do so responsibly. <laughs> then yeah. then hopefully that's a bit better. Listen, Colin, I got to move us to the next story. Uh, this one comes from Business Insider, um, and it says a crypto exchange can't repay how 190 million dollars it owes to customers because its CEO died with the only password. <laughs> Can we just take a moment for that? Oh my God. So uh, Quadringa CX reportedly owes its customers about 190 million, casually. Um, and the widow of the exchange's founder uh, said uh, their inventory of cryptocurrency has become unavailable and some of it may be lost. Hmm. Um Users have been complaining about withdrawal issues and a lack of communications, um, and the exchange's new directors voted to temporarily pause the platform on January 26. Uh, they're considering selling off its operating platform to refund users and multi... Oh, my God. Crypto, just grow up. What the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, look, this talks to, like, custody is everything, and if uh, if... You're being your own bank and you have to manage your own keys. If you lose that key, the problems are pretty bad, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's funny that um, we always talk about exchanges needing to do KYC and making sure that all that stuff's being done correctly. Uh, you also really need to be careful who you do business with if you're doing business with cryptocurrency and making sure that you're dealing with somebody that knows what the hell they're doing. Uh, ask lots of questions. I think also there's something to be said for, again, one, consumer education on knowing who you're dealing with, and two, that tech piece about, like, if you're used to dealing with a bank and they do something wrong, they are legally liable to get back to you. There's a social contract there and a a legal contract that says they have to do that, and governments have armies and guns that can make sure they do that, uh, in theory, at least. Um, And then the alternative is you be your own bank, but you give... You hand your money over to somebody else who is being your bank for you. If they mess up, that's it. Tough shit. You're out of luck. Yeah. I mean, recovery is bad. Nobody's really willing to insure these things for the time being because that risk is so high. Uh, know the risk you're getting into. And I think over a long enough term, uh, you will be hacked. Uh, you it's will. just a, Yeah. I, and it, I think it was Jameson Lopp uh, was sort of talking about six months ago about he's lost keys, he's uh, he's been hacked, he's had all of that happen. You know, and, and for him, his worldview is, hey, you know that that goes with the territory. I'm fine with that. But my point isn't that somebody could be fine with that or not. My point is, I truly believe, and I've seen plenty of customer sentiment data that would suggest. This is not what the rest of the market wants. You wanting it um, and the rest of the market wanting it is a different thing, which to me is why these mass consumer applications of crypto just never catch on because they've not solved for a real customer job. They've not uh, materially helped somebody progress in their life. Uh, they've just been speculative and interesting. The only job they did is make me, a you know, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to gamble on it because it might make me super rich. Mm. And that needs to change. All right. Next story comes from Cheddar.com. Uh, Facebook and blockchain sitting in a tree. K I S S I N G. So, 
The Social Network has quietly hired the team behind Chainspace, a small blockchain startup founded by research from University College London. Shout out to London, not a field in France. Notice that. Um, According to Chainspace's August 2017 white paper, the team wanted to build a distributed ledger platform for high integrity and transparent processing of transactions within a decentralized system. Basically, they wanted to fix uh, Stella and Ripple. They wanted to make payments that worked. Um, So four of the five researchers behind Chainspace's academic white paper are joining Facebook's blockchain group. And of course, let's remember, Facebook's blockchain group is headed by none other than David Marcus, who used to uh, lead their Messenger platform. And before leading Messenger, he was the CEO of PayPal. So this is uh, an industry heavyweight that they're putting behind this. Again, says to me, absolutely, their intentions are in payments here. I wonder if they're going to get to the point where they turn around and do like a, a kick or kin thing and say, actually, we don't need a blockchain for what we're trying to do. I, I I don't know. Uh, it's going to be an interesting one to watch because it's... So I, I think the thesis goes something along... And I'm speculating here. I have no idea. That, like, imagine I'm in an emerging market and there's no reliable central bank and mm-hmm. I want to allow communities of people to buy, sell, and trade amongst each other. They're currently dealing in cash. What can I give them without taking on the regulatory liability of tiny country and or far-flung jurisdiction to which, one, um, I, Facebook, don't wish to be regulated, and two, uh, the complexities of those regulations would break the service and not be in the interest of the customer. Like, I could imagine you'd want something that functioned a lot like digital cash uh, that mm-hmm. didn't come from a centralized operator in order to make that make sense. And that might solve for a real job for those customers. Like, you know, if, if uh, I'm a market stall uh, owner and I'm currently carting cash backwards and forwards and my goods backwards and forwards from my market stall in town for you know a two-hour walk home, there's a good chance that I might be robbed and that money might be stolen mm. and that could really impact my life negatively. If that exists digitally and I just send that money back home, I mean, this is what mobile money solved for, right? When you saw M-Pesa in Kenya, when you see uh, mobile money throughout sub-Saharan Africa, that's what that's sort of solved for. Um, mm-hmm. But it solves for people who can afford to have some sort of contractual KYC obligation slash relationship with that company um, that's regulated by a, a central bank uh, and or regulated by uh, a national jurisdiction. In countries where uh, those authorities aren't as reliable or aren't as effective, or you don't have an agent network of people selling SIM cards, that's a little bit harder. So the problem they're trying to solve is a legitimate one. I just don't know that uh, they've necessarily figured out all the pieces yet. Or at least if they have, uh, it's not clear. Um, they're, they're still definitely trying to acquire hire and find the right solution for the looks of this announcement, at least. And I think that's key. But uh, I mean, I, I just feel like a lot of their trying to push down this is to exploit a, a loophole in regulation, which is you know that they're not looking at cryptocurrency as closely as they would just e-money. Because mm-hmm. a lot of what you, you said, you could just say, well, let's just put this under European e-money rules. Um, and somebody in Kenya would trade under Irish uh, e-money rules. At some point, somebody would go, yeah, actually, that's probably not okay. And at some point here, somebody in Kenya will go, actually, this is probably not okay either. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it won't. But I think there's that wider point that you brought in, which is uh, whatever you're trying to do with this technology, there aren't a ton of people that know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're paying up for it. We saw the crypto facilities earlier. 
hundred million dollars plus for for a small group. Um, we've got this team in here getting hired four four out of five people from the academic space into Facebook, which is one of the biggest tech companies on the planet. Um, if they're having a hard time finding people internally, it's not like you can just translate over. Well, and I think what's interesting is, of course, that Chainspace team, I believe, is the team behind RS Coin, if I'm not mistaken. And RS Coin, if you if you go look it up, uh, was something that the Bank of England research team uh, both found interesting, but when you look at it, I think had a, had some of the same challenges that the early versions of Stellar and uh, Ripple had, which was uh, when you're working with uni- unique node list validators as your consensus algorithm, uh, you reach a, a phase, and, and Stellar published this um, a sort of a couple of years ago, where there's a risk that the network forks above 2 million wallets. Um, and there were several other issues around aliasing and addressing that are quite technical, um, but that were sort of uh, inherent to the RS coin design as well. So I wonder if the chain space design, uh, guys have really moved on from that or if it's still, you know, sort of uh, something that makes sense for 10 transactions, but not 10,000. We shall see. We shall see indeed. Alrighty, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, the block crypto, uh, IBM puts literal oranges in a blockchain. Uh, IBM does a thing um, and gets a headline. <laughs> Cointelegraph.com. IBM will put anything on a blockchain. <laughs> they really will. Cointelegraph.com, Germany's second largest stock exchange, Borsa Stuttgart, launches crypto trading app. Uh, let's see if this one gains traction and if it gets a lot of users, but again, interesting. And Coindesk.com, uh, BitFury partners to launch Bitcoin mining centers in Paraguay. Uh, interesting one. All right, it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. All right, Tweet of the Week this week comes from Maya Zahavi and friend of the show, um, at Mayazi on Twitter, and it says... We're going to end up with a protocol funding mechanism that taxes transactions on behalf of developer foundations. The allocation of those funds and their purpose will essentially be the agenda of most governance votes on those protocols. So stepping back here, Colin, there's a few things going on inside that tweet. Talk to me about uh, why you liked it, why you wanted it to be Tweet of the Week. I liked it. It was super geeky. Um, but there was uh, there was a story we covered, I believe, last week talking about Grin, um, one of the new privacy-focused coins. Um, we talked about it last month in, in more depth. Um, the the developer was trying to raise essentially money to to continue to live on. I think something like fifty five thousand euros or something, uh, a reasonable size when you consider the size of an ICO. Um, and essentially wasn't getting any money. The problem was um, everybody was kind of in it for themselves and nobody really thought about the person actually building what they're working on. Um, I, I, thought Maya's, uh, I thought Maya's point was uh, interesting here because she said, you know, we need to think about how we fix these things and maybe we do it on a transaction level rather than at the mining level or, or demanding charity at every point or doing an ICO. Um, and actually how you allocate those will become a really interesting thing. Her and I started talking about this as, at the wallet level and I'm actually quite surprised that it took us a long time, but we only found one wallet uh, that actually ever tried to create a way to fund the wallet itself through a fee. Um, having those at an optional level to say every time a transaction happens through Ethereum, why don't we allow you to have a very small piece of that go into funding Ethereum itself? Um, hmm. it, it's novel and it gets us away from the ideas of having ICOs and maybe companies can raise money in a more normal way if we see that there's revenue coming into these things. A crazy idea, this revenue thing, rather than just printing invisible internet money and, and inflation is your only way of making money because that creates a speculative bubble, of course. But of course. Uh, who knows? Uh, we've seen that, enough of that from the central banks. So um, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, but, but I guess there's... 
that fee economy thing has always been kind of difficult for the crypto space. Um, it, it's been difficult for them to transition and micropayments generally don't work on the internet. So it's going to be interesting to watch, like, could somebody really get micropayments to work if you're offering a service? Because it's quite normal for people to have an account with AWS and be paying for all kinds of little different services across AWS, um, at different fee structures, different pricing models. So like Ethereum... and isn't a million miles away from what AWS sort of offers in principle, at least in 10 years, 20 years, whatever. So if you were to be you know, using a wallet on it uh, that used Ethereum or executing a smart contract and all of those things, why couldn't you have a wallet that just managed the micropayments for you? And you sort of saw MetaMask doing that with some uh, bits and pieces. So like if I use Peepeth uh, and I use MetaMask, it sort of manages the micropayments for those transactions for you. Um, like, will people pre-fund uh, their browser to be able to view uh, ad- view the internet without adverts and just pay in micropayments across a service? I think there's a huge opportunity for that. And I know there's several companies looking at that and could still be the killer use case. Maybe. I mean, yes, I, there, there's definitely room that you could argue that market exists. I don't know that this is necessarily the technology at the time to do it. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, I, I think it. What's really, really interesting. I think kind of gets to the heart of this is, um, even if you don't think Bitcoin or crypto or Ether or any of these other ones are are sustainable in the future, they're really cool to experiment around these economic ideas. Um, and if you're not paying attention to that, you're really missing a lot of things by just discounting it. Um, being able to figure out whether it's uh, funding model through something that looks like uh, taxes on transactions and an optional or or a more obligatory manner is really cool. Um, and I think that we should all be paying attention to that stuff and understanding what that means and the implications for more traditional businesses. Here, here. Uh, I think that more traditional business implication thing is uh, a thread we're going to keep coming back to. If nothing else, this space is something you can learn from. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Uh, thank you very much, Colin G. Platt. That's it for this week. Where can people find out more about you, sir? At Colin G. Platt on the Twitter. Alrighty, um, and you can find me, Simon, at 11fs.com or at SYTaylor if you want to make fun of me for some reason. Uh, just to remind you all, this podcast is made by 11fs and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. Uh, as you can probably tell, I find the wealth market extremely interesting right now, so get in touch if you want to discuss that too. Um, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, Subscribe button's right there, people. Just reach out. Reach out. My hand is reaching out for your hand. Just hit that subscribe button. And if you're already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. Um, That helps us out so, so much. Um, And reach out. If there's something we're not discussing and we should, or if you've just got a question for me and Colin, um, just hit me up, simon at 11fs.com or podcast at 11fs.com, and we're happy to answer any questions you might have. If there's a subject we're not covering that you want us to uh, or anything like that, just just reach out, of course. More Uh, PTK news. Uh, yes, of course. Um, that's, that's that's a whole blog post and a whole another subject, Colin. Um, a big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, produced Petrit, and of course, Alex Woodhouse, our editor. Thank you for loaning me the laptop when my uh, microphone didn't work. And thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye for now. <laughs>